Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The beginning of this century saw the British Armed Forces conducting protracted counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. These campaigns were fought predominantly with light infantry, supported by close air support, both fixed and rotary wing, and careful use of limited fires in order to reduce collateral damage from 105mm light guns and GMLRS. Successive politicians and generals who thought that the days of war fighting a peer adversary with armour and artillery were over were caught off guard when Russia invaded the Ukraine. Suddenly, the importance of these weapons were back on the agenda, especially when an estimated 80% of Russian casualties were due to artillery in the killing fields of the country they invaded in February 2022. Despite the God of War nickname, the gunners are rarely as fashionable as their more glamorous colleagues in the cavalry and infantry units like the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Marines, which often grabs the public's attention. They're a functional tool adept at both the boxer's precision jab or the blunt force trauma of a headbutt to the face. The infantry may take on whole ground, but gunners help them get there by preparing the battle space by the application of fires, coordinated with a manoeuvre of forces to destroy, neutralise or suppress the enemy. Without adequate fire support, the infantry's job is much more deadly, difficult, and the enemy can deplete the ranks of a well-trained and precious resource. This was clearly recognised in World War II, where the Royal Artillery consisted of 960 regiments, with over 1 million soldiers in its ranks, and the German army considered the gunners one of the most professional arms of the British army at that time. The Royal Artillery was at the heart of the United Kingdom's contribution to the multinational force taking part in Operation Desert Shield, with the aim to drive Saddam Hussein's army out of Kuwait. A huge air assault on military, economic and communications targets was launched on the 16th of January 1991 
and just over a month later, on the 24th of February, the ground forces commenced their offensive. Within four days, the operation was complete. Iraqi forces were comprehensively defeated and Kuwait was liberated. The primary firepower of the war came from Allied air operations planned by the US Air Force, supported by Allied bombers, fighters and precision-guided missiles. Intelligence indicated an abundant Iraqi artillery capability that outranged Allies. Although most of it was towed, the Iraqis had demonstrated in the Iran-Iraq war that they were able to mass fires and were willing to use chemical munitions. This made the challenging mission of depth counter battery fire highly important alongside a desire to have 80% attrition of Iraqi frontline guns. Throughout the six-week air campaign preceding the ground attack, the Allies did virtually all the firing, and whether or not air power was in fact destroying the enemy's artillery had a significant psychological effect. Six gunner regiments deployed up Granby, and these were 2nd Field Regiment with M109, 12th Air Defence Regiment with Rapier, 26th Field Regiment, with 109, 3-2 Heavy Regiment with M110, 3-9 Regiment with MLRS, and 40 Field Regiment with M109. Many detachments and individuals from other units went with them to bring them up to war establishment. For example, two of 2nd Field Regiment's three batteries of M109 were provided by 2-7 and 4-9 Field Regiment respectively. This method of delivering fully manned gunner units underlined just how hollowed out the peacetime structures had become even in 1991. The same was true of equipment with the requirement of wholesale cannibalisation of the armoured vehicles left behind in Germany. One officer in 49 Field Regiment, based in Lipstadt, recalled that the regiment's undeployed guns were a sorry sight. Stripped of the main assemblies and barrels, they sat in garages like tuskless elephants. The regiment's first significant contribution to the war effort came with gun raids which commenced on the 7th of February. In these raids, a battery would move forward to pre-selected positions near the enemy, fire a predetermined amount of rounds at selected targets, and move quickly back to avoid counter-fire. These raids not only kept pressure on the enemy, but also afforded great live fire training, particularly gunnery movement, which would be needed later to support the ground attack and rapid advance into Iraq and Kuwait. In the final week of the artillery raids, targeting was improved by redirecting limited unmanned aerial vehicles and flying them over Iraqi forces. This valuable intelligence allowed the raids to focus more and more on the enemy artillery. Between the 24th and 27th of February, the gunners provided artillery fire support during the advance north for the two British brigades, suppressing or destroying Iraqi positions effectively and minimising the need for close combat arms engagements. The artillery preparation after numerous artillery raids and weeks of airstrikes appears to have been the coup de grace that silenced the Iraqi artillery. After the war, an Iraqi commander stated that he lost 17 of 100 guns to the air campaign, but lost the other 83 to artillery fire and most of it to a 30-minute artillery preparation on the first day of the ground attack. One of the unsung heroes of the war was GPS, which is virtually unknown before we deployed. For a soldier today who can purchase a cheap GPS watch, they can't imagine the transformative effect of knowing your exact location at any time in any weather, especially in the featureless expanse of a desert. This tool was invaluable for soldiers working in the recce or FOO rules, as my unit did, and which we covered in podcast number 10. Should be noted that the gunner support represented the greatest concentration of fires provided by the regiment since the Second World War. My guest today is Kev Brain, who deployed at Op Granby as a Sergeant Gun No. 1 in charge of an M110 203mm howitzer, 
specifically built for general support and counter-battery fire. He describes his career in the lead-up to deployment and what it was like to take part in the gun raids so effective at depleting the Iraqi artillery assets. Don't forget to like, follow and share details of the podcast and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. It doesn't take long and helps bring it to attention of a wider audience. Finally, if you enjoy the content, you can help with ongoing costs like website hosting and buy me a virtual coffee via a link in the show notes. Let's crack on. Thanks for coming on the pod, Kev. It's great to have you on. So, can you start by telling us when you joined the army, what made you enlist, and why you chose the Royal Artillery? Uh, well, I had a grandfather who was um, ex-artillery, Northwest Frontier, and then uh, I was introduced to the TA in 1974, which was 266 GVA, Gloucestershire Volunteer Artillery Battery. And I had a great one year with them and then decided after that that I wanted to do the Army and the Gunners full-time. It's interesting that you joined up when you did, because in the early 70s, there was probably quite a few of your senior NCOs would have been trained by World War II gunners, and you even might have had a an actual World War II gun in the shape of a quartermaster kicking about. Uh, yeah, I had, uh, I had an old National Service quartermaster from 3rd RHA called Ken Eccleston. I mean, most of the kit when I joined the TA was 25-pounder with the old 25-pounder dial sights. Looking at the uh, state of the reservists today and the trouble they have in recruiting, back in the early 70s, was there much trouble getting guys in? Were you fully recruited as a TA battery? Uh, no, I mean, my um, entry in into the TA, I think, took about, from when I applied, was about a week. And then from medical and getting in and being attested, yeah, it was about two weeks total. And I think it was the same for when I applied for the regular army, it, it wasn't as long as what it is now, but it's in months. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's lasted, it's lasted bang time. It was about two or three weeks. I think even when I joined up in the mid-80s, well, 84, 85 when I joined, it, it took about a matter of months. It was not the complete mess they're having nowadays. You need to do more soldiers recruiting soldiers. And you remember the old keeping the army in the public eye tours? There was another thing as well, satisfied soldier. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. And I did that for two weeks in Bristol with the recruiting sergeant. It was there. It was from our regiment. And that was basically, you went back to your, where you lived, essentially, and yeah. uh, sold the life as a young private or young gunner, as it was, to potential yeah. recruits. That's right, exactly. And then just go like to job fairs and where the army set up a stall to try and get people, in, you know, lads coming up or girls coming up, want to chat and want to know what was like in Germany or like in the army. See, you can't beat that sort of thing. That's far better than going on a computer. Totally impersonal. Even when you walk into a recruit office and you have the three offices to go to, Army, RAF, Navy. And I remember my first contact was cutting out a bit from the paper. Always adverts in the papers. I filled that out. And then uh, you got a load of brochures in. Then you went to the recruiting office. Then you went to the selection centre and basically said that all that was done in a matter of weeks. It was unbelievably quick. So you joined the regulars, mate. What was your basic training like? And for the listeners who might not know, when you join the Royal Artillery, you're normally at the end of your training, you do your like 12 weeks basic. And then you're normally trained as a basic signaller, a driver, or qualified on the guns before you arrive at your first regiment. So what was that like for you, Keith? 
I'd originally done um, two weeks at Woolwich as basic trainer for the TA. So when I joined the regulars and I went to Woolwich, I knew exactly what to expect. Uh, I knew I knew my way around everything. So and I'd, I'd had a good ground in it. And then we went into our basic training, which teach you how to march, teach you how to shoot, teach you how to dress, teach you how to hygiene and things like that. 19 weeks total. And the last three weeks was gunnery training on the 105 pack outset. With the last week being it on Salisbury playing, doing live firing. Yeah, that was very similar to mine. I, I did signals and I was misfortunate enough, or some people might think it was fortunate, but I was stuck on the OPs with a very experienced OP team who had this very unconfident signaler sending uh, messages back and forth to the guns. Yeah, well, that, that, the TA unit, um, 266, they, in that day, they were an OP battery. They had um, three 25-pounders for doing the training the OP teams, up, similar to the HAC, but from the council estates, not from state Leone. <laughs> I, I remember you telling me, though, when you were the TA, you drove the Duke of Westminster, who was one of the richest he, men he, in the UK. He was the OP commander and gave me a nice glass of red wine and a bacon sandwich early in the morning. What was he like on the ground with you? Was he a pretty good guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was um, like with us uh, just for uh, about a month, I think, and we just had to have our um, two-week or a uh, long weekend. You know, you do like a TA, you go on a Thursday and finish on the Sunday. And then uh, he was just with us at that time, and I was put into his team with a, with a bombardier. I was a permanent staff instructor with it. HAC uh, in London in the mid 90s. And I remember you got a right old mix turning up. The admin guy that worked for the quartermaster sergeant who drove his vehicles, no guy, I say old, he's in his 40s, old for a soldier, I suppose. He was a wine merchant and uh, his way of switching off at the weekends, just driving a truck, no responsibility, yeah. get away from the wife and kids essentially. And the gunners were quite a big mob then as well. There was plenty of regiments to choose from. When you first went in, I mean, the, the offers that were on the table, I mean, you could go to Hong Kong, you could go to Singapore with an independent battery, Germany, yeah, it, it, just all over the world, really, where you could be set. Even when I joined in 85, the gunners were a huge, huge regiment. Yeah. When you look at it now, we've given away all our uh, AS-90s to Ukraine, and I saw a proud boast on LinkedIn the other day there, saying that one of the regiments was taking delivery of 14 Archer 155s. But back in Dekev, as a six-gun battery, that was enough for two batteries and a, and a couple of spares, but it wasn't even enough for yeah. two eight-gun wartime batteries. So <laughs> it's a yeah. bit of an embarrassment. So you finish your basic training, and you are posted to British Army of the Rhine in Germany in the mid-'70s. What was that like? Um, that was an idea, yeah. I went to a cracking little German town called Hildesheim, which is about um, 20 miles south of Hanover. Uh, there at that time, that was five heavy regiments. Uh, with M107. Uh, we had three gun batteries with four guns in each battery. A lot of the boys there were um, ex-national service, and you had to hit the ground running, so to speak. As soon as you got there, you were expected to know what was what, and just be as good as what they were. And they didn't suffer fools. You had to pull your weight, and if you didn't, then, well, you can't do it these days. Did you think it was bullying back in the day? Because back in the 80s, it could, yeah, it, was, it could be a tough life joining a regiment, and it was... Yeah, a, like anything. 
was a million. If, if anybody carried it too far, then they'd be pulled up for it, definitely. And it was generally a lot of it could be weekends with alcohol induced if you class that as bullying. But during the working week, um, I never seen any bullying at all. No, not, not in any shape or form. With week, weekends, possibly different because um, they like to have a, a drink. You grew to appreciate that. You, you knew who to avoid if they'd had too much to drink. Put it that way. I mean, it's an interesting aspect of the Royal Artillery in that most people's allegiance isn't to the regiment, it's to the batteries. And there's a lot of tribalism within the regiment, isn't there, between batteries? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, battery, three batteries at the time when um, I joined was uh, K. Hondigan Battery, which I went to, Shire K. The two batteries I was in, I was in 473 Battery and K Battery as well. I served in K Battery in the latter part of my career. And I always thought one of the key battery strengths was it's battle honour, because each battery in the Royal Artillery is a battle honour. We don't have colours as such. The guns are the colours. Yeah. And key battery is Hondigam. That was a battle that took place in the retreat from Dunkirk in 1940. Yeah. We've done an episode on it. But yeah, I thought that was a strength of the battery, that they had such a, an affiliation with that town and such a recent battle honour. It was a real strength for the unit. Yeah, I, I think there were only two or three battle orders given out the Second World War to the Gunners. Uh, K was one of them, and I think um, uh, J City Regards Battery, I think, they were given a battle honor as well for fighting in the, in the desert. And there was one more by Captain Ember, was might have been when, uh, when they were fighting the Japanese. But um, yeah, K Battery, uh, 4187 1904 in the village of Ondigo, and then slowed it up all before Don Kirk and gave. Quite a lot of troops chance to get Dunkirk, so it's a, it's a proud history for Kay Barry. Ah, being on a gun back in those days, especially the M107, which is a beast of a gun, yeah. what was it like to work on that? You couldn't say it was detachment friendly compared to other um, artillery pieces that the gunners had, like you had your 109 Abbott and whatever, whereas um, 107, you were open to all weathers, you had no cover. The shells were 147 pounds, and the ammunition wagons were never allowed to put up close to the gun. And then the cartridge boxes, well, they were absolutely enormous with wooden pallets on. They were the, the worst pain ever to carry. And Wait, what sort of rate of fire? Did it? How many rounds a minute could you get down with a good crew? One round a minute. And that's that's with a full detachment. Well, we were operating generally with six instead of 11. And uh, at one time, when we were doing a thing called HF fire, Harrison fire, uh, my detachment, we held the record for it three rounds away in 55 seconds. I think the other problem you had was the Soviets were very good at counter battery. So you're always on the move. Could you just explain how that worked? That came in later on in the mid 80s, that shooting scoop philosophy, where generally a, a, a battery would form up in six guns and take its time, do five fire missions at three rounds, then another fire mission at three rounds. So we're really troubled by the shooting shoot philosophy that came out later. When that came out onto the ground, then it was two guns away, no camouflage, fire rounds, get off your gun platform as soon as you fired three and get to a new location. And that was a different concept totally. Instead of having a lot of guns on the ground firing en masse into one area, they were taking individual targets and using, say, two guns at a time to take on the targets. And then after that, you go back to a high location. 
I've got an embarrassing confession to make on this one, and that I've never been in a gun in my life. I should have 22 years in the Royal Artillery. The only one I've met a few gunners that have never smelt cordite. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'll still speak to you. <laughs> I have smelt cordite, Kev. I have been on a gun position. I've just never properly worked on one. <laughs> One thing you learn when you go near a gun position is that the gun number one, and that's the sergeant, sometimes the bombardier, uh, under that cam net and around that gun's his domain. And uh, yeah, he runs that platform. And what even the CO just doesn't wander onto a gun position, do they? Nobody comes under the under the camouflage net or onto the gun platform without the number one permission. And and you'll generally find officers that they'll ask that'll be outside and that permission to come onto your platform. You are allowed to shout if they forget, and then if they don't ask permission to come come onto your platform, you can ask them to leave, and then leave them standing out in the cold for a bit before you acknowledge them. It's a dangerous place. People forget during the Cold War, there was a lot less focus on health and safety, and it wasn't unusual for people to be badly injured or even killed on gun positions, was it? Uh, yeah, my first uh, winter firing was in 75 in November, and... Uh, we were on a gun position in Oga, and the sergeant major instructing gunnery was standing on our platform, and we heard a boom behind us. We'd we'd done um, pee battery fire it, and then it was a real, a real like funny noise. I've never heard it before. Or seen. And uh, the SMIG, the sergeant major instructor, he said, um, "That's a bore premature. Uh, you'll you'll be um, no more exercise this time." And it was one of the call signs. Their shell had gone off in the barrel. Was them to kill? They were very lucky. They'd never lost anybody. Nobody was killed. And one of the things you see in Ukraine is a lot of the barrels are getting worn out really quickly, and especially on the larger yeah. caliber guns. I mean, how many rounds could you put down an M107 before the barrel would need change? It's not as many as people think, is it? Uh, what we called it was um, EFCs, effective full charge. Your, your barrel had a barrel history, so when you came back, um, every round that you would fire could be noted, and what charge it had to fire it and then um, your barrel would be inspected I think when it got to probably about memory is fading a bit but I'm, I'm sure it was once it got to 300 rounds you'd fired in the in the barrel life then you were deemed to change that, that's nothing in, in gunnery terms is it 200 no. rounds with, with the rate of fire they're doing in Ukraine at the minute I don't know how they're getting off for um, barrel changes yeah I remember reading there's a shortage of gun barrels and, and the companies to churn them out which is again this thing where Europe is just not prepared for production of artillery ammunition or the support yeah. aspects of looking after the guns over the long term and also the amount of gun maintenance you have to do on exercise or on operations they do take a lot of looking after a bit like tanks you eventually became gun number one, which was usually a sergeant, and that meant you got your own gun and crew. Uh, so what was your yeah. career progression before this could happen? When I started off on the guns, I, you have to do every kind of job on there. you got to know everybody's job, really. Because if one goes down with an injury, somebody's got to step into that. You can't just say, right, this gun's out of action because I haven't got a, I haven't got a detachment that's um, qualified to do it. So everybody had to do everything from your loaders, your ammunition numbers, um, knowing what fuses, fuse settings, what charges. And then um, I became a layer, which was the operating the sites. And that gave me a good insight because you work then with the number one all the time. You're its number one worker. 
And then I progressed from there once I got um, promoted to Let's Bombardier to what they call a cover or a 2IC. What a number one is sorting out with the layer, the, everything with the sights and whatever else. The cover rules the roost with the ammunition numbers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then once a gun becomes available and if you've got the promotion and I got my first gun when I was a bombardier. And then courses as well. Um, you do basic guns, advanced guns within house in the regiment. But for further training, detachment commanders courses and assistant regimental instructors, ACRIs, those are all done at, um, or they were done in, in Germany at Hola, at RAG2, the uh, Royal Artillery Gunnery Training Establishment. And that was a four-week course on each one. And then you had to pass that, and that wasn't just attendance, you had to pass. And then on top of all that, you had to do your promotion courses, your... Lance Bombardier Leadership Courses, your Bombardier Leadership Course, they were three to four weeks at a time as well, weren't they? There, there, there was a lot of courses there to get you up to speed. You know, it wasn't just like, there's a gun, go and take it, fire it. it no matter how technical the artillery got and they, they adopted computers, I was watching a gunnery detachment shortly before I left in sort of uh, 2007, and you've still got all the old things like, even though they're taking on board a lot of these computers, one of the checks that they do is a guy runs out in the front of the gunnery's compass and takes a, a, yeah. a compass bearing to make sure the gun barrel's yeah. pointing the right direction. Yeah. Did you have any sort of computer on board back in the day, 80s, with the M107? Uh, I mean, the um, the only computers were what were in the command post, and that was FAPES, then, wasn't it? The field artillery computer equivalent. And they were the ones that gave you all the um, your bearings and your elevations for the gun. The sighting systems on the gun, uh, that was the old 25-pounder sights on World War Two. We were still using them. I'd right up until the Gulf War as well. We, we had a few discussions on the podcast about the amount of equipment from World War Two that made it all the way through to the late eighties, even the early nineties. <laughs> yeah. That you're just talking about there. You're lucky enough to deploy not Granby as part of an artillery regiment, but you went with the M one one O gun instead of the M one O seven. Why was that gun chosen instead of the M one O seven? And can you describe what the operation was like? Um. The, the artillery had had 110, but I sold them when the regiments were equipped with MRS. 
uh, prior to Gulf War, and I think they were sold to the Dutch. I think the Dutch military had bought all the 110s off the British. And then, of course, when he invaded Kuwait, the first um, trench went over, Granby 1, and I think we were Granby 1.5, weren't we? That's what they called it. Mm. When they decided that it was going to be um, a, a, like a, a, a two brigades were going to be there. So then they, they, they were going to send heavy regiment. And the ammunition was still available for 110. And one would have said, the 107, but really we were more or less on our last legs before we were equipped with MRS as well. So it was decided 110, though, and the Americans um, provided a lot of the ammunition as well because they still had a lot of 110 ammunition. The 110 is, is a lot more accurate. Uh, it's only got a 15 kilometer or 15 mile range account. I was told I remember that. Whereas the 107 was a 20 mile wreck, but also um, 110 gave the options for firing nuclear as well. So, what were your missions like when you started putting rounds down the range towards the enemy? Well, um, we got out there in the December 90, just after Christmas, we went out. And once the guns had arrived off the ships, we were um, out training on them out in the desert in Saudi. It's coming up to the anniversary this Sunday coming on the 18th is when we fired our first rounds. And what they said they wanted the 110 to do is um, what they call gun rates. And we were given a three gun positions close to the neutral zone between Saudi and Iraq. And then uh, we drive out there, the ammunition if you wait, where I'd be dropped off and everything else would be done. And then uh, we just wait through it and fire, and I think we fire 12 rounds from each location at targets within Iraq, and that was before the ground war went. And that was just like to clear the way when they were thinking of going over to Burma and going into Iraq. So we did three of those in three days. When you come driving over the desert in your line of breath, and then you see Abraham tanks and Bradleys lined up as far as the eye can see, horizon to horizon. And then they, four of them, part and let you drive through, and then you watch them pull back in to fill the whole deck, and then you're off on your own. That was quite a, an exciting time. That kind of like had your blood going, thinking, "All right, this is it. This is what we're into now, right? and this is going to be interesting." And then you know, fire, fire twelve at one platform, um, pack up, down to another one where it's all laid out, and fire another twelve, and then off back. People often talk about force protection, and you're off beyond the sort of the forward edge of our own troops, did you not get any infantry protection or was he totally on your I own? No, nothing, nothing at all. When we did the first shoot, on the second shoot, um, uh, a couple of Bradley infantry vehicles accompanied us. That was probably the first time we had um, any uh, outright protection there. I was, we were then told before we left that if multi-long truck had fired during our fire mission, it means we had incoming. Did they de-effed us and they were firing back. And we were, I think, six rounds into the 12-round shoot and uh, MRS 3-9 regiment opened up behind us on the targets that were firing at us. And uh, thankfully, we were told after, uh, our CO told us, he said that um, they de-effed us that quick, which was really surprising that they got, they'd got our location that quickly from however they did it. I don't know. It was either same ranging or they had spotters that uh, we don't know. But their rounds that they fired, and I think that they, they fired quite a few, but um, they all landed well short. 
And um, they think it was because of the Iran-Iraq war and what we were talking about before with EFCs on the barrels. Their barrels were that war. They, they just didn't have the range that they thought they had and their rainfall fell short. How did you know that you were firing accurately? Because I take it this would be an unobserved fire. So how did you get target information reports back? The drones out there as well that were flying. They were taking photographs of the target area. And just for listeners who may not know, the drones that we're using back in the Gulf War by the British, they weren't the all singing, all dancing ones you see now. These were basically... No. <laughs> they would go up, they, they would follow a, what was called a racetrack, like a figure of eight yeah. around the targets. They would take photographs and then they would come back land and it was wet film, so that had to be taken away and developed. And fair play to the imagery, it was good, but it, w- it wasn't instantaneous like it is today. How many rounds did you fire during the whole of the operation then, Kev? Um, from faster bites on, I think we fired over 240 rounds, 240 plus. Generally, we're, we were firing PD, which is point detonating, so the, uh, the shell would go off when it hit the ground. But later on in the operation, they gave us multi-roll fuse and they were all set for 30 metres. So we knew we were firing on infantry out in the open there, or we were firing on trenches or it was infantry maybe or soskins that we were attacking. I mean, it was frantic. It was 48 hours. So what was the rest of the operation like for you when you weren't doing the firing? Um, we did the whole roar and NBC kit as well. That's uh, largely forgotten. We were all rigged up for um, NBC chemical... We was all inspecting that, gas mask by your side, rubber gloves on, over boots. Uh, we rolled through the berm and then we were given positions, targets. We were told what we were firing at and you'd fire the range and then we'd be off. 3-2 Regiment was operating ahead of a lot of the armoured screen because they were using us then to find stuff at the back end of all their support trees and whatever else they had. So when I was firing, I had Challenger tanks loading up by the side of it and then going off and firing as they were going. But that, we were that close to the actual uh, forward edge of the battle. The intention of that was to get you as far forward as possible in order to extend the range, I take it. That's right. And, and also to take out what they thought was the baseline behind their forward troops so they had no reserves. I think, I think we took out quite a lot. We, we weren't concentrating on like what the tanks were concentrating on, the infantry were taking out. We were taking out certain sides, second and third line. That's the Iraqi defence system. And that's traditional targeting for depth artillery, isn't it? And you've seen that in Ukraine as well. You don't want to be yeah. taken on the front attacking the elements because the infantry can deal with that with their anti-tank weapons and everything oh, else. Yeah. And their close support yeah. artillery, but the depth artillery is operating yeah. as it should be taken out, follow-on forces, logistics, uh, headquarters, that type of thing. It was uh, a job well done, really. And I remember you described to me before about some anti-tank action you had to carry out. Do you just want to describe that to listeners? At the time, we had, we were in the middle of a sandstorm and it was totally obliterating the, um, the, the, the area we were working in. And we were given a 12-round a, a fire mission. And into about four rounds, we were given check fire and directly in Dolside. So that meant that there was, uh, we were operating in over open sites, firing at something coming at us. And with a, a 110 heavy artillery, you're going to get one round at most. And that's going to be you done, really. A bit of modern battle tank coming at you. The, the, the information came over the airways. And they'd lost two Republican 
tank guard divisions within the sandstorm or brigades, not divisions, brigades. And that's what they thought was coming at us. So um, all the 110s were put off directly at our side. All the detachments sent out two men out front with the laws, if you remember that, light anti-tank weapon. We had one per gun. And then um, we had A-10s flying over. And it was the A-10s that um, unfortunately took the two warriors out in the fusiliers. Uh, of course, on 21, 22, it was a sad day. Did you feel your training fully prepared you for what you experienced out there? Did I? Although we were operating in the desert, there was no difference to what we would normally do in Germany if we were operating in Germany. So everything was exactly as we'd already planned or trained on him. There was no deviation from the training that we had done. Right? So it was all second nature. Yeah. And I think it's acknowledged that artillery in the Gulf War on the American and British side was an absolute battle winner. Whether this is just mythology, which the MRS was the most awesome thing out there, artillery, I thought. I, you know, I was on a big, heavy gun, but when those things fired, when you seen them flying over at night, you were just glad that you were not on the far side of where that was going. The Americans said when they did the first mission with MRS, and you can see their rocket release its payload in the air. And the Iraqis thought that it was it had broken. And then they christened it Black Rain because all these bomblets come down. And uh, they were paying a heavy price for, for what was happening there with MRS. It was just a, it was a slaughter, really. For them. I remember it was probably the biggest fireworks show I've ever seen in my life. Because yeah, in the yeah, days yeah. leading up to us crossing the line of departure, all the air yeah. attacks were going in, the artillery yeah. attacks were going in. And every evening you could see rocket launchers firing into the air. You could see in the distance the, the airstrikes yeah. going on. It was just amazing. You just couldn't believe that MD could survive underneath that. When, when they started surrendering, they could quite understand it. They wanted nothing to do with what the, the madman had put them through. So I could understand them totally when they uh, all started coming through surrendering. It was just one or two, and then it was... Three, four, five, six, ten, twenty, thirty, forty. Were you driving through these guys as they're trying to surrender? We'd give them you know, as much water as we can, and they gave over thank you things. You charged them and sent them through, and then the regiment set up behind us every time. Um, you know the um, fort lifts, the big fort lifts. I think they were called um, the Eagle Beavers. Well, we had, and they had spotlights on, and they set them up in a square with the spotlight shining towards the prisoners and we just pointed them in that direction and that was a holding bait for us they were in the sap bunch they were um, demoralized totally they, they had enough to understand when you see the ground like we fired on it. It, it it's just what artillery and what firepower we put down and that was a big army they were a, a, a lot of people on the ground I've interviewed a few guys who from the Falklands despite the vicious hand-to-hand fighting in there they generally felt quite sorry for the opposition after they'd surrendered and help feed them and, and treat them medically and all the rest of it, which is a bit of a difference, again, what you see over in Ukraine where Russians are taking prisoners and treating them very, very badly. You've talked quite a bit about MLRS and how much it impressed you, and that was a, a long-term aspiration for the Royal Artillery that eventually came to yeah. fruition in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. What made that such a game-changer, in your opinion? Well, our regiment, we're building up for it for quite some time, well before the Gulf War, because we had sergeants sent over to White Sands Missouri in 
um, New Mexico. And they were learning all about it to come back and tell us everything about the battle launcher. Uh, there was, I think it was three of them were sent over there for about six months, I think, learning about MRS. But when it came after the Gulf War, our guns were like laid up, we're not going to be used again. And then uh, uh, numbers ones, or who were going to be the uh, MRS number ones, were sent to Lark Hill to do your Tyson Commander's course on it. And to do the first live firing of that, we went up to um, a place up in Cumbria. Uh, called Estlil's DSTL proofing place and we fired out to sea and uh, uh, it's just amazing the, the, the actual system how it worked and how, how, it, how it operated was just uh, it, it was a gunner's dream to be a, to be a, a rocket jockey definitely a lot more comfortable because you had a heated cab as well oh yeah there's only three of us and it was heated <laughs> you had, uh, and, and we had a PV we never had a PV before Tell people what a BV is, Kev, because it's, it's an old song, heroic kit, isn't it? What, what does it do? Uh, it just boils your water to make you a brew on the moon. Fantastic. <laughs> One of the best inventions the British Army's ever come up with. And it was the envy of the Americans whenever they saw one. And it used to be great because, I mean, a, a civilian listening to this would not get it, but to be able to have a, a boiling vessel where you could have a instant hot water for a brew, you could stick your tins of food in there or your ration packets when they became soft ration packets yeah. you could stick them in there it's, it yeah. was just an absolute lifesaver wasn't it a boiler yeah. vessel I remember when I went to cave battery mate from 473 battery and obviously in 473 battery you were dismounted majority of your career you had to carry everything you bag and uh, I got my troops out major slot and my driver had the Land Rover rigged up with a BV in the back of the Land Rover and that was like you know it was on the go Oh, mate, it was just so good. <laughs> See, M107, what would else? They had nowhere to do it. We could have them, these. Yeah, because it's open to elements. But, I mean, operating an MLRS, because you're on your own and there's only three you, and you, you're operating those shooting scoot tactics, it must have been quite hard work, though. Um, well, I mean, loading and unloading, it's all automated anyway. It's a two-man operation to get the new rockets on board and get the empty... Um, the empty magazine out or the empty car out. And then um, away from that, it, it was less work than an M107. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. And more comfortable. Detachment friendly. Definitely. Mm. Definitely detachment friendly. Whereas an M107 was detachment nasty. I remember the uh, one of the delights of, I was told by friends who worked at the M107 was the best place to be when you got your gun number one possession was above the engine louvers because that was the only source of heat in the gun when it was moving. Yeah, yeah, I used to either sit on the front deck above the engine or I used to sit behind the driver with my legs dangled into the cab. Uh, as usual, we'll finish yeah. off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film and luxury item. So what have you picked for the podcast? Uh, well, the book, I've, I've read it uh, last year, and it's by James Holland, and it's Brothers and Arms. That's a great and book. Had, uh, Sherwood Rangers from with Churland tanks from D-Day right up until Germany. Um, it's an amazing book, and it's the the attritional rate for tank commanders and tank crew was oh, I never realised they'd lost that many. It was it was just unbelievable what they went through. You know, I couldn't read it in one sitting. It just get too emotional when you read some of the things. I've read it, and, and uh, the Sherwood Rangers were a TA battalion, weren't they? Territorial. Yeah, it's like, um, 
the Padre that was there, he had to go and identify um, tank crews that were still in the tank that were mangled, killed, burned, and then he'd bury them and record them where they were for graves registration and whatever else. What a man. And then he married some of the commanders at the end of the war when they were back in Blighted. Yeah. He was their officiating vicar. I read that book probably last year as well, the year before, and, and that Padre, I can't remember his name, that's really annoying me now, but he was an amazing yeah. guy. Padre Skinner, that was the guy. And what I found out amazing about him, Kev, was, I remember yeah. he said to his guys he would never leave any of them on the battlefield. And he would go out into the battlefield when he was told not yeah. to, it was too dangerous, and he'd be pulling guys who are really badly mangled and burnt corpses out of tanks yeah. to give them a proper burial. He was a compassionate, amazing man. So what's your film? Well, there's so many films to choose from that I would take, just because I've always liked it, and it's it's from the other side, it's from the German side, I would take Cross of Iron with James Cooper. Classic. I just think that was an awesome film. It was a really good film, and it, 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 a lot of it is anti-war, but then a lot of it is comradeship. So what was your luxury item then? It'd have to be a single ball. I'm a Scotsman. I can't stand whiskey. So you're, you're putting me to shame. Not, not only have I never worked on a gun, I don't like whiskey. I'm not, I'm not a proper soldier. <laughs> My choice is a book that was chosen by a US Marine Corps colonel who was on a podcast with me a few episodes ago. And it's called yeah. 2034, A Novel of the Next World War by Elliot Ackerman and Admiral James Stradvarius. And it was published three years ago. And if I'd read it three years ago and I thought it was a wild turn of imagination but when you see what's happening yeah. in Ukraine and elsewhere around the world it's the red storm rising for the 2000s we all used to read red storm rising back in the day so it starts off with a cyber attack and it just used its imagination and made me think about how the modern battle space would look and when we combine it with what you see in Ukraine and in Gaza it's, it really is quite interesting well that's it for another episode Kev Great to have you on, mate. We've had some real drawers with comms because you live in the middle of nowhere, but we've finally got it recorded. And thanks again to listener for their continued support and suggestions. And uh, please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you download us from iTunes like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcasts from. And finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing help and offering technical support for his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.